Hello and welcome again to another edition of Mormon Matters, your weekly romp through all things Mormon, including current events, popular culture, history, and um, all sorts of other things. We're very excited today to have with us uh, two LDS women. Um, the first is Rosalind Welch, and the second is Taryn Nelson Seawright. Ladies, welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. So, uh, Rosalind, you're, this is your first time as well as yours, Taryn. But, Rosalind, why don't you begin and uh, introduce yourself to our listeners, please? Sure, John. Uh, I'm Rosalind Welch. I grew up Rosalind Franson um, in Southern California, the, the oldest daughter of um, two very active LDS parents. Um, I grew up as a, a good Mormon girl um, Went to Brigham Young University. I served a mission in um, Porto, Portugal in 1996 and 1997. I majored in English, and when I got home from my mission, I knew that I wanted to uh, go to graduate school. I became engaged with my husband, John Welch, uh, who was in medical school in San Diego. So I moved to San Diego and started my uh, Ph.D. in early modern English literature at the University of California at San Diego. Um, during the time that I was working on my degree, I had uh, two of my three children, Elena and Jack. Um, shortly after uh, I finished, in fact, just a few days after I uh, graduated um, in 2004, we moved to St. Louis, Missouri, where we currently live. Uh, my husband is a, an oncology fellow at Washington University, and I spend most of my time at home with my children, who now includes a third uh, little girl, Mara. Who's now one? Um, I also, uh, during my abundant spare time, I uh, continue to work on some of my research projects. I've published a, a few things here and there, um, and I attend conferences and um, try to press forward on my research. Um, I also um, have greatly enjoyed my introduction to blogging over the last several years, and I am a blogger at timesandseasons.org. And I also participate in a few other. Um, academic projects uh, here and there. I have sort of eclectic interests and I indulge them freely. So that is me uh, and I am I'm glad to be here with you, John. Well, thanks, Rosalind. Now, uh, what's it like going from San Diego to Missouri? Well, you know, the difference in climate is almost as big as the difference in real estate prices and uh, we moved here for the real estate, not for the, not for the climate. <laughs> But, you know, after three years here, I can honestly say we are enjoying it very much. Um, we have a wonderful ward. Um, it's been a great professional opportunity for my husband. I have adjusted to the humidity and the snow. It no longer feels like a personal insult from the universe when I have to dress my children in shoes and socks before I take right. them outside during the wintertime. <laughs> uh, and we have been enjoying it very much. Oh, good, good. And, and is your husband related to the Mr. Welch of Farms fame? 
Yes, he is. Yes. Oh. Uh-huh. So you're you're some way connected to John Fowles a bit, probably then. Yes, John Fowles is my brother-in-law. Oh, well, wonderful. Yes. Well, um, again, Rosalind, we're very thrilled to have you. Thank you for coming. You're welcome. My uh, pleasure. Now, Taryn, you're an old friend. We go way back. Um, please you. introduce yourself to our listeners. Uh, let me see. Well, I'm Taryn Nelson Seawright. I am 30 years old. I live in the Chicago area with my husband, Jay Nelson Seawright. We are both bloggers at By Common Consent and Latter-day Saint Liberation Front. By Common Consent is kind of a general purpose, Mormon issues and culture blog. And Latter-day Saint Liberation Front, as one might guess from the, from the title, is dedicated to an examination of some of the ideas behind liberation theology in a Mormon context. Uh, I've written on both general themes and themes more related to the economic stuff that I just mentioned. But my first strongest interest in Mormon studies are probably Book of Mormon Studies and um, and gender issue studies, actually. So I, I've currently got an analysis running. I'm, I'm part of a research group, a collection of women across the country and one woman in Europe. We are looking at the authorship of the ensign over the last 30 years by gender and doing an analysis of the themes that different authors feel comfortable talking about, that kind of thing. So that's uh, that's what I do in Mormon studies and related fields. Professionally, I'm actually a social science researcher. I do qualitative research on medical practice. So. Yes, and um, it's also fair to say that you're one of the first interviewees for Mormon Stories podcast. That's true. I, I was. I was, was I your third or your fourth interview? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure, but I was quite early. And you've, co- yeah. you've come a long way because you're now willing to use your real name. Although we did. That's true. We did use it uh, somewhat sparingly during the podcast on accident. Yeah, actually, you know, we, we were still trying to, be, trying to be completely anonymous when we did your podcast because we were afraid that people might be uncomfortable with some of our economic ideas and we didn't want to. We didn't want to, um, you know, embarrass our families if, if they were really uncomfortable with it, that kind of thing. But uh, <laughs> but then we did that podcast, and I kept slipping during the podcast, and my husband Jay, instead of Roasted Tomatoes, that was his pen name. And a couple of weeks later, you know, you edited almost every Jay out, but there were a couple that got past you. And right. a couple of weeks later, we were at church, and a friend of ours walked up, Slapped Jay on the back and said, "Roasted tomatoes." Oh my god! It's so good to see you. And we both just kind of had heart attacks right there in front of my class of sunbeams. <laughs> um. My apologies. Oh no, we're getting my, exposed. <laughs> my apologies. No, no, actually, it was great. No, it was wonderful because then we realized that there was really no reason for us to be anonymous. That at least in the world that we lived in, which was in, in, in the People's Republic of Berkeley, <laughs> everyone was perfectly comfortable with us. So. Well, for those of you who haven't listened, you know. go back to one of the early episodes of Mormon Stories, and you can hear all about Taryn's story. It still remains one of the most listened to of my episodes. At least four, four or 5,000 people have downloaded it, so it's a really good one. Anyway, without any further ado, um, today we are going to talk about women's issues in the LDS Church. And for those of you who don't follow Mormon Stories podcast, and we're going to have to do a really good job of talking as though none of you do because we can't make that assumption, uh, I began a multi-part series on women in the church a few weeks back, 
and I've done um, several episodes now. My first episode was an introduction. My second episode was an interview with a professor on uh, the three waves of feminism, as we called it, sort of just tracing feminism throughout the United States. And then we did uh, three hours with Claudia Bushman. One hour um, was a dear friend, was a, was a friend, Melissa, in a way. And then uh, I did two hours with Claudia myself. But today we're just going to talk about Rosalind and Taryn's reactions to uh, this series, where we got it right, where we got it wrong, where they're happy, where they're angry, and what their reflections are. So without any further ado, ladies, um, did either of you get a chance to listen to the introductory episode? Yes, I did, John. All right, let's have Rosalind start if she has any thoughts, and then we'll let Taryn take a stab. Sure. Uh, I I thought it was very interesting, John. Um, I was struck right off the bat by the way that your introduction sort of uh, took the form of a kind of religious narrative. Uh, it sort of became a story of of sin and redemption, right? You 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 uh, expressed deep penitence and and regret that you had hitherto uh, <laughs> failed to include uh, an episode specifically about women and and uh, sort of mention your your turning point where your your sin was brought to your attention. And then uh, you talk about uh, this series of podcasts in pretty specific terms as a sort of act of restitution and, and, and penitence. And, you know, it, it's interesting the ways that our religious thought and our religious lives kind of become imbricated with uh, our professional lives and our intellectual lives as well. Um, but I was really quite struck by that, and it was something that you returned to on several occasions in your, uh, in your conversations later with uh, Seraphine and with Claudia Bushman. Um, <clears throat> I, I can tell that... Uh, this entire series of Mormon stories, and in particular this series of podcasts on women, uh, comes from a, a very good corner of your heart, and y- you can sense the, the good faith and the goodwill uh, in your voice and um, in your words as well. I, I wonder, though, um, when we start to talk about these issues in terms, in moral terms, right, where sort of um, women's history becomes moralized so that paying attention to it uh, is sort of um, a good deed in a way, and, and failing to pay attention to it, it is something not just an omission or an error, but actually a kind of, of sin for which we ought to feel ashamed and, and make restitution. I wonder whether in some ways uh, that can um, maybe not lend itself to the clearest uh, and most concise forms of analysis. Um, that that's something perhaps you can uh, respond to at a later time. Um, in any case, I was I was really quite struck by it. I also, um, as I was listening to the way you set up this series of podcasts, um, you you sort of um, set it up by talking about the United States and and uh, you sort of refer to the sort of heroic figures and the heroic events that we've all learned and were the foundation of our great nation. Perhaps some of us even at church today heard some references to that. Um, and then you sort of undercut that by um, pointing out that for, you know, 60 years or however many years, um, women had lacked the right to vote. So that underneath the sort of glorious and uh, um, noble foundations of our nation lies this sort of deep violence and... Uh, and um, deep kind of moral lack. 
and then from that, you know, as history unfolds, we build and move toward a more enlightened and more progressive um, state. Now, I think this is one kind of master narrative that people use to understand history, starting from um, sort of, uh, uh, oops, nope. I feel like I'm, you're good. I feel like I'm good. Okay. Um, starting from a sort of heroic, um, I'm sorry, starting from a um, sort of depraved state um, and, and then progressing forward uh, to a more enlightened state. There's another way that people look at history, and you make some reference to this as well, and that's starting at the Golden Age, and then sort of um, as history progresses, we see a decline. This is sort of the, the Hesiod model of history, where we start with the Golden Age, and then we move down through the Silver Age, the, the Bronze Age, and finally to the Iron Age, which is a fallen and kind of depraved age. And in some ways, this kind of master narrative is what we often hear when we talk about women's history in the church. We sometimes talk about sort of the, the um, charismatic and enthusiastic spiritual gifts that the Relief Society um, featured so prominently, the kind of autonomy that the Relief Society enjoyed. And then we look with regret on things like correlation and the ways in which um, spiritual expressions have been subdued, particularly among women. Um, so I, I thought it was very interesting to see both of these kinds of ways of looking at history uh, were at work at the same time in, uh, in your introduction to the podcast and, and also in your conversations with both Seraphine and, and Claudia Bushman. Very good. I just want you to know, Rosalind, I, I appreciate your perspective and your, uh, your candor. It's very welcomed because I'm, I'm very new to this uh, whole dialogue and conversation. I feel... And, and I'm going to use religious terms again. I really do feel almost unworthy to be covering it because my lack of knowledge is so great. But before I interject myself and try and respond, I would love to just give Serenity Valley a, cha Valley a chance, or uh, Taryn, I'd love to give Taryn a chance. Either one is fine. <laughs> uh, Taryn, why don't you jump in and, and give your own thoughts and or a response to what Rosalind said, whether you see it differently or, or felt the same thing. Well, I think actually that a few of the things Rosalind said were really, well, everything she said was really interesting, but a few of them were things that I really agreed with. I did think, while I was listening to the interviews, that that tension between, you know, the progression narration and that golden age decline kind of story was really interesting, not least because I've seen it so much as I've become involved in women feminism as an intellectual movement. Everyone, everyone who writes about it, we tend to glorify this this past glory. Well, that sounds idiotic. We tend to glorify this past um, wonderful, wonderful time when women were getting blessings and women had a real voice in the church because they ran the Relief Society with no input from men in the church, so on and so forth. But at the same time, we're all aware of things like our history of polygamy that a lot of people are very uncomfortable with, especially when they're thinking about women's rights and and feminist history, uh, because it's very complex. That there, there are arguments that have been made in the past about about polygamy as a feminist thing, but still, there's all this complexity, and I've seen this over and over. And it was, it was just really remarkable the way it played out in those interviews. I think she's right, um, I, because it points to a really serious divide in our own thinking about women's status in the church and about what we want for women in the church. We don't know whether we want to go back or forward. We don't know whether we want to make things into into what they were 
at one point when women had limited status and power, but there was power, or whether we want to create something entirely new. And that's a difficult issue that we really need to talk about as a community and try to decide, try to find some consensus on. But I have to say, though, that as far as viewing this as a moral narrative goes, I think it's a really good idea. Um, I think that issues of equality and issues of, of bias and discrimination in our church or really in any other cultural context are moral issues. I think that as a Mormon, I have to say that. I have to see it that way. And I'm not sure that given, given the religious utopia that we're really trying to create as members of the church, at least within our own small communities, uh, that we can get anywhere if we don't view this as a moral narrative, if we don't view this as, as this is right, that was wrong. Because what point is there? In, what point is there in having this, this religious conversation if it's not about morality? Ros- it does that make Yeah. Yeah, Rosalind, let me just, let me just ask you real quick. Um, do you not see it as, as uh, a, you know, d- unfortunate or even violent that, that women weren't able to vote for so many years, or do you not see that as a, as a big deal? Uh, no, of course not. I, I, I'm. Let me put it on the record. I am definitely in favor of a woman's right to vote. And um, I, I don't think that we need to um, take the the moral perspective out of our our understanding of history entirely. Um, and, and of course, I, I I agree with you, Taryn, that uh, there is a very important moral and ethical aspect to um, the ways that we treat different groups of people, and and that institutions and individuals uh, should be accountable for that. I guess uh, what, what I was referring to more specifically was the idea that um, <clears throat> the idea that that blogging or uh, or podcasting, sort of uh, the, the kind of um, enterprise that we're engaged in here, is one um, in which the stakes are are so very very high. It seems to me that that sometimes there can they be a little are. bit. Uh, it seems to me that sometimes uh, our our, our um, view of its importance can get a little. Uh, just a little inflated, you know, a, a little bit of sort of the savior complex might make its way in. Um, and I, I think that tends to lead to lower quality and less interesting blogging. So <laughs> from my perspective... I don't uh, think it's a... Okay, wait, let her, let her finish, Taryn, and then we'll jump to you. Go ahead. Keep, I'm keep very going. sorry. I'm, I'm, I, I apologize, Rosalind. No. I didn't mean to interrupt No, it's good. Oh, keep, no going, problem, keep going, Keep going. Keep going, That's Rosalind. just fine. I enjoy the give and take. But <laughs> yeah, for, from my perspective... Um, when we're talking about things like um, the accounts that we make of history, as opposed to the actions and um, the events that that compo- comprise history themselves, now of course that's not a, a completely st- uh, a stark divide. But when w- what we're disagreeing about are accounts of history, rather than sort of the reality of history itself, which, um, in a very real sense, is inaccessible to us all. All we have are the ways that we talk about it, and I think that. Um, when, when we inject sort of matters of righteousness and, and evilness uh, at the very center and at the very beginning, from the very outset, um, I think that, we're, that we may not uh, always end up with the clearest analysis. Once we have a clear analysis, uh, then I think perhaps those questions of, uh, uh, of rightness and wrongness, of penitence and, and shame, maybe can come to the fore. Uh, but in any case, John, I, I don't think that you need to 
uh, feel that you need to make restitution or repentance for <laughs> you know not having not having had a podcast on women's issues. I'm glad you're doing it. I think it's a valuable and useful thing. But uh, but I, I I hereby offer you absolution. My status as an LDS an LDS woman. <laughs> can I can I pay you indulgences? <laughs> oh yes yes. <laughs> PayPal is accepted. <laughs> All right, Taryn, go for it. Okay, well, first of all, b- before I go on and talk about my, you know, my reactions to, my own initial reactions to those first few podcasts, uh, I do have to say that I don't think that, I don't think that we can analyze and then think about the morality of, of our own history. I think that if we do that in this case, then we risk missing the point. I think that the reason that you felt bad when you realized what you've done is that you were leaving out a very important conversation. You know, Mormon Stories is a wonderful program, and it's very, very useful for a lot of people. And I was really relieved when you said that you felt embarrassed about it because I really respect you. And and stories about women and stories about Mormon feminism had been a glaring omission from a program that I really, really respected. And And so... I have to say that I'm not surprised that you felt that it was a moral issue, and I think it was entirely appropriate. I think that um, I think that one of the things that's so great about what you did when you when you recorded that episode and you said I feel really bad about this was that you you showed people that it was an important thing that they could or they should feel bad about if you know if they were doing that kind of thing if they were ignoring really pressing issues that affect the lives of everyone in our church, and especially the church's women. Um, so I have to say, I don't think we can really remove the morality from it. I don't think that um, this is an abstract thing. I think we need to keep our own history and the way we understand it very close to our hearts, because the church is a religious endeavor. It's a moral endeavor. Um, it just seems appropriate to me. On the other hand, I, I do understand what Rosalind is saying, and I think that if you were an academic historian, I might feel differently about that. <laughs> you know what I mean? I did really, really enjoy the first podcast just because it was fun to hear about kind of the journey of discovery that you were going on with this stuff. I, I come from a background that leaves me really, really unfamiliar with what people are what people are aware of and aren't aware of, what the popular media teaches us about American history as it regards women. And it was a lot of fun hearing hearing what you were discovering. It was it was a little bit upsetting for me because I know that you are someone who really cares about people. You pay attention to people to people's stories, and you didn't have very much information, which no. means to me that there's not very much information out there. There's there's not very much information being circulated, and I, I'm upsetting because I think you would have picked it up, mm. <laughs> you know, if it had been available easily. Yeah. So that was a bit of a shock to me. Sure. Um, I think the Seraphine interview was was interesting as well. It was partly be- in part because of the tensions I heard between you and Seraphine when you were trying to manage the interviewer. It was it was interesting because you were talking to Seraphine, you were asking her for information, and at the same time you were trying to guide the interview. But it was a little bit awkward because you were a man trying to guide an interview with a woman who was giving you a rundown of feminist history in the United States. And I thought that there was some tension there in the roles, if that makes sense. 
<laughs> you oh. didn't want to cut her off. She didn't want you to cut her off, but there were some objectives that you had for the interview. And given the subtext, it was just really interesting. Okay. You know? Yeah. So, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun, I thought, actually. Rosalind, what 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 are your thought? What were your thoughts on on the the three waves of feminism? I also enjoyed listening to that very much. Um, I, ha, you know, have been trained in feminism both in college and in in graduate school. I've read all the major feminist theorists and I read quite a bit of feminist history. Um, I my my dissertation, you know. Um, focused on women and, and, and brought up feminist issues. And yet I, I have not been in the last several years uh, really plugged into the kind of women's studies brand of feminism that, that Seraphine was, um, was imparting in, in that episode. Um, in, in particular, since I've been out of school now for uh, several years, um, I, hadn't, I hadn't really encountered and I hadn't sought out the sort of women's studies version of, of, what, of what third wave third wave feminism has done for us and how it relates to second wave. I, I am, of course, am familiar with third wave feminism and have my own, my own thoughts on it, but I hadn't heard kind of the party line in the way that Seraphine um, presented it, so it, it was interesting. Um, I do say, have to say that I, I disagreed with some of the ways that Seraphine um, characterized the various waves um, and probably a point-by-point -point rebuttal uh, wouldn't be very interesting uh, podcasting, so I'll, I'll spare you some of that. Um, what, what really struck me, though, was, again, the ways in which we make use of our history. Uh, just as we saw, as we talked about in your introduction, as you sort of um, <clears throat> read history in the ways that served your own rhetorical purposes um, in, that, in that introduction, I think Seraphine, of course, was doing the same thing, as, as we all do. In particular, I was struck by the ways that she saw all three waves of feminism, the first, the second, and the third, as sort of germinating in the kind of um, uh, personal satisfaction of work and life, the work-life balance kind of uh, 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 um, arm of feminism that I, I sometimes call the New York Times version of feminism because it seems to dominate uh, in the New York Times um, questions of <laughs> how a woman um, can find satisfaction raising a family, raising her children, and, you know, pursuing something else. And, you, you know, she talks about how for Elizabeth Cady Stanton, um, in, in her own personal history, uh, moving back to um, Seneca Falls, raising her children, and, you know, finding that she needed something more. And, and so from this kind of um, sense of, of needing to find personal realization uh, springs the first wave of feminism. And, and once again, uh, in, in the, the second wave of feminism, again, she, she sort of has this narrative where women during World War II had experienced kind of the, the stimulation um, uh, of the workplace and then came home in the 50s, and it, then it was sort of in that sort of domestic oppression of the 1950s that women again, Betty Friedan and others, you know, began to... Um, feel that there was something more in life, you know, something more than, than being stuck in the kitchen raising kids. And, and, so, and so then from this beginning, once again germinated uh, uh, the second uh, and, and I would say um, most formative wave, uh, most culturally formative wave of feminism. And, uh, and then once again, in third wave feminism, it, it seemed to be, uh, from her perspective, mostly about um, allowing women choice. Once again, respecting women's uh, choices, whether they whether they choose to work or whether they choose to stay home with their children, again that uh, in in um, 
sort of sanctifying personal choice we allow women to uh, to find self-actualization, self-realization, and, and pursue personal satisfaction. And, th and that, that sort of is the, the font of, of all these different waves of feminism. Now, uh, I, I have to admit, I'm a little skeptical of that, uh, just because uh, I, I don't think that the idea of sort of personal um, satisfaction and sort of self-realization that is really important to us now uh, was something that motivated women, particularly, uh, you know, around the turn of the century in, in first-wave feminism. And I, I'm even slightly skeptical, um, the feminine mystique aside, uh, that, that that's really sort of the, the source of second-wave feminism. However, I, I think it's extremely telling that that is the way that Seraphine um, presented the origin, sort of the, the, the foundational myths, if you will, of feminism. And I think it speaks to how important that issue is to women uh, now. Uh, we, we, we have the luxury, I guess, of, of being very concerned about finding personal satisfaction and finding that balance between our families and our, and our professional lives. Um, and, and this is the issue that really kind of obsesses uh, feminism and, and women generally. Um, if you look on the blogs, for example, it's almost always those, those threads that, that bring up these issues and engage them in some way that will just catch on fire and will, will bring to the surface a lot of, um, a lot of emotion and, and a lot of passion. Um, so I, I thought it was uh, both informative and also it's very revealing for what our priorities are now um, here at the beginning of the 21st century um, as we look back on a century of, of feminism. Hey, hey, Taryn, I'm going to bring you in just a second, but Rosalind, I'm going to, I'm going to just follow up with a couple of real quick questions. I, I, uh, I appreciate that perspective. I can totally see where you're coming from, that basically uh, people sort of take the things that they care about now and project them back into everyone's motives in the past. I think that's absolutely true that people do that. Um, but let me just ask you, just, just to get you on the record, do you um, do you embrace the term feminism or the title feminist for yourself? And if you were to offer an alternative uh, interpretation of motives for the the three waves, do you have a personal interpretation that you feel would be more accurate? Uh, well, for the for the first question first, I. I'm, I'm really going to infuriate you, John, and I'm just going to say it's not an important question to me. Okay. It, it really is not. There, there have been times in my life, at, you know, when I was in college, even when I was in high school, I, I, I heard Seraphine sort of give her self-description of, you know, uh, sort of um, feeling that she, she's being afraid of feminists and, and then sort of being converted to feminism in, in college. I had the opposite experience. I, I, I always in, identified with feminism, uh, didn't feel any shame in doing so. Uh, even in high school. In college, I found feminist theory and, and my, my literary theory classes in which I encountered it uh, to be a, a very galvanizing and invigorating kind of introduction to myself as an adult. And I, so for that reason, I have um, a lot of affection for and, uh, and respect for, uh, for feminists and the feminist movement. Um, as I've aged, I have simply found that it is not an important question to me anymore whether or not I am a feminist. I think uh, I, I'm really put off by the kind of evangelism for, for feminism that I sensed a little bit in Seraphine, although 
she's such a likable person. It it doesn't it doesn't grate at all. I, I enjoyed listening to her very much. But I, I when people start trying to convince me that no, you really are a feminist, that then you know the contrarian me comes out and says no, I actually really am not. You know, <laughs> but in fact, it's it's not an important question to me. Um, I I have found that as I have matured into an adult, I am sort of perpetually interested in um, questions of women's lives women's experiences. I'm very interested in women's history and women's writing, women's textuality. I, I care a lot about um, understanding uh, female nature, understanding uh, children, what it means to be a mother. These are the interests that, uh, that uh, capture my mind personally. Um, in that sense, I, I suppose I am a feminist. Um, I have, you know, I, I am not an activist by nature. I have very little um, interest in the sort of activism of feminism. Um, however, I, I have a lot of interest in sort of academic feminism and, you know, women's history, things like that. So, um, so yeah, there it is. Well, that's <laughs> if, good. If, 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 uh, you know, if it will help to smooth the way for an interesting conversation, I happily identify as a feminist. <laughs> However, if it will help smooth the way for an interesting conversation, I will happily do that. But I, well, I'm not attached to the label at all. Just for the record, I'm not infuriated in the slightest. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Now, your second question was whether or not I had another um, alternative interpretation to offer. Um, and the, the, the truth is that I, I do not. Um, I, I am not an expert in, in um, U.S. history and in feminism in United States history. As I said, my, my primary area of research is um, early modern England. However, my experience sort of reading texts that are removed from us historically is that it's very easy, in fact, to project our own concerns backwards, and that, you know, what our, our um, deepest concerns now really are quite foreign from what people at, in other times and other places um, um, experienced. So for, that is the uh, reason behind my skepticism. Um, but I, I sadly do not have another interpretation. No, it's good. To so you offer. like to you kind of like to reserve judgment on motives in the past. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, I mean, if you're lucky enough to come across a wonderful set of documents that can give you insight into uh, into the personal motivations, then wonderful. Then I think we can make an informed judgment. Um, barring that, I, I don't think we can make assumptions. Um, so, yeah. Okay, great. All right. Well, Taryn, it's your turn. Please. Uh, what would you like me to... <laughs> do you have any... Do you have any um any response to anything Rosalind said and any other reflections on the Seraphine interview? Well, I do, I do have to say that I think that it's actually defensible to say that uh, the search for greater meaning or for more purpose was something that may well have sparked early feminism and modern feminism. I, the simple truth is that the people who started the women's suffrage movement, they weren't they weren't working-class women who were in the factories 16 hours a day, 18 hours a day. They weren't very, very wealthy women who were busy with their husbands' businesses, with the social lives that were necessary to maintain those businesses. They were middle-class women, upper-middle-class women, who found themselves getting involved in social issues in the earlier part of the century, you know, the 1800s, because they, they had time on their hands. Their husbands had incomes that suddenly allowed people who had always expected to do most of their own housekeeping to 
to hire servants. And suddenly they found themselves with all this, all of this free time on their hands. The first thing they did was that they began to organize little salons, little groups that they met in to keep busy. And the next thing they did was start to address social issues. The reform movements of the 1800s, the progressive movements, the temperance movement, the abolitionist movement, the suffrage movement, these things all came out of all of this. And I, I can't actually point it out of, out of the top of my head, but I do remember having read personal accounts where people talked about about how they found themselves sitting and thinking that life had to be more fulfilling or could be more fulfilling. The important thing to remember is that that's a very class-bound thing. That's a very class-specific thing. Um, I, I think it's a defensible a de- defensible hypothesis, what Seraphine said, and I actually think it's well-supported. But while I do think that, I think it's also important to say that what Rosalind said is very true. It's hard to guess people's motives. It's hard to, it's, it's very hard to guess your own motives when you're interpreting, you know, documents, people's journals, when you're, when you're reading about the past. So with reservations, I think Seraphine actually had some pretty defensible ideas. D- Taryn, if I may, uh, do you, looking back, and, and from what I've read, it seems to me that, you know, when you, uh, what, you're, you're exactly right, and this is a really important point, that, you know, women uh, were involved in a very um, sort of class-based way in all these uh, sorts of um, sort of voluntary organizations and groups. Um, I, I've heard it referred to as kind of like civic housekeeping, and I, I loved that. I love that term, really important um, kinds of work. Um, but it seems to me that mostly they talked about those activities in terms of duty, in terms of obligation, um, a sort of noblesse oblige often. Um, they often um, found justification, um, religious justification um, for, for doing good works. Terms very different from the way that we now talk about, you know, what it means to have some me time, you know, and... and uh, and mm-hmm. to to use your mind and, and not not you know have your mind turn to mommy mush or whatever. So, uh, do, do you well, think that that's here's right? Here's the or? thing about that. Um, here's the thing that that's actually a complicated question because on the one hand, a lot of the public documents and a lot of the early public speeches that I've read, you know, I'm not an expert in, in that part of you know in that part of American history, but from what I've read, a lot of the public statements people made use that kind of language, you know, here we are, it's, it's the responsible, the socially responsible thing for us to do. We are the moral conscience of our nation because we are the mothers of our nation, da 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 But in their journals, people like Katie Satan, they actually talked about other issues. They did talk about things like, uh, at some, I guess, some basic level self-actualization, about, you know, having, women having more fulfilling lives. And I think it's important to remember that sometimes people present themselves publicly in a way that's strategic, in a way that will help them to gain influence. If they are, for instance, members of an oppressed class who uh, who want to change that, <laughs> you know, by saying we're doing this not not for ourselves, we want the vote not so that we can have a voice, but so that we can ensure that men don't in their immoral and drunkenness screw things up, that's a, that's a way of of trying to claim power where you have none. And it's from what I've from what I've seen, from what I've read, it's certainly not the only motivation people had. I don't doubt that there were plenty of people, especially early in the temperance and abolition movement, 
who were involved solely for the reasons that you discuss. But as time went on, and especially as the women's movement developed, that changed. You know, and, and there were plenty of people who stayed involved for those reasons, but there's plenty of evidence from what I've seen that that wasn't universally the case. Yeah. Interesting. Now, I'm, I'm just going to throw a question real quick at um, at Rosalind j- before we move on to Claudia. But, you know, if, if you think about uh, the plight of the blacks in the United States over the past several hundred years, uh, I think I think it's reasonable for, for the for those for, for those who are who are black or African American to say, yeah, I'm angry about how my ancestors were treated. We were made slaves. We we couldn't vote. We you know and many of us couldn't vote until the 1970s, and uh, you know we got a bad rap and and we're angry about it, and you know but we're going to figure out what we can do to go forward. And so you you can say uh, <clears throat> you could probably project into the past that and I've heard people try and do this that slaves weren't that upset on the plantation that actually they had a better lot than than uh, th- than those who weren't slaves because they got fed regularly. Blah blah blah. Um, but you know, I think it's pretty fair to say that they were mistreated overall, and and have cause to look back on history with with some regret or anger. Um, Rosalind, what I don't hear even a hint of from you, and, and it's just how probably how I'm listening. But I don't I don't get a sense that uh, you feel like like there was injustice or mistreatment uh, for women in the 19th, 17th, and 18th and 19th. And in 20th centuries, am I mishearing you, or is this just something you haven't gotten to yet? Uh, yeah, I, I think you are. Yeah, I think you're mishearing. Me. I don't think I've really commented on that at all, John. For the record, let me let me put it out there. As I said before, I, I you know, I, I am, I, you know, yes, <laughs> I'm very glad. I'm very grateful for the fact that women can now vote. I, I, you know, I, I am just as horrified as anybody at, um, you know, and believe me, I, I, I as, a, as a student of early modern England, uh, I'm well versed in what it meant for a woman to live um, without the sort of structural protections that they now enjoy. Um, for that, I, I give a lot of credit to first and second wave feminism. Uh, in a lot of ways, I, you know, I have a lot of respect, in fact, for those good old hardline second waivers. You know, give me Gloria Steinem, give me even Linda Hirschman, who's sort of been active recently. I, I kind of love them for their sort of stubborn adherence to a principle. And it sort of, I, I sometimes roll my eyes a little bit at what I perceive as kind of the mushiness of, of third wave feminism. Uh, so, so, yes, I have deep appreciation and deep affection for. Um, uh, for feminists and and feminism, and I know that I owe many good things in my life to uh, to their efforts. However, you know I think it's very difficult to uh, compare subjective happiness um, over time. I don't think we we really can do that, and, and I think it may be misguided to try. So, are women happier now because of feminism? That's mu- a, a very difficult question to answer. Sure. Are they materially better off? Yes, probably in many ways. Now, at the same time, I feel that feminists oftentimes have a real hesitance. I, I noticed, for example, that, that Seraphine never even mentioned abortion. You know, how, how can you talk about second-wave feminism and not mention abortion and, and sort of the galvanizing and central issue that that was um, right. and sort of feminism's embrace of the sexual revolution of the 1960s and the ways that that has sort of ramified 
uh, throughout our, our culture in these days. Um, there is sort of secondary collateral cultural change that occurs when you work hard to disrupt basic social institutions as, the, as they very clearly were attempting to do. I, I think they were attempting to do so um, in, in perfectly justified um, adherence to their foundational principles. Um, but the fact is that a lot of, a, a lot of other things have happened as well. Um, and now we find ourselves in situations where, um, you know, <clears throat> th there may be sort of large-scale cultural effects that now come back around to kind of, uh, you know, nip at our heels, even while we as individual women are enjoying the freedom um, and, and, and the protection and, and the many choices uh, that have been secured for us. There can be other um, sort of changes that happen in cultures when, when rituals and institutions are dismantled and, and those, can, those can have negative effects and sometimes those can come back around um, and can detract in some ways from the subjective happiness of women um, in the present day. So for that reason I think it's an extremely difficult question to ask, are women happier now than they were before? Um, I, I don't know how to answer that question. Are we materially better off? Um, yes, yes, without a, without a doubt we are. Um, and for that, I give, you know, again, a lot of credit a lot of, and a lot of gratitude um, to those women who worked hard to, to make these changes. Um, I also am not afraid, however, to criticize where I think they went wrong, even sometimes disastrously so. It may not be on the mountain height or over the stormy sea. It may not be at the battle's front, my Lord would have need of me. But if by a still small voice he calls to pass that I do not know, I'll answer, dear Lord, with my hand in thine, I'll go where you want me to go. I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord, over mountain or plain or sea. I'll say what you want me to say, dear Lord, I'll be what you want me to be. Perhaps today there are loving words which Jesus would have me speak. There may in some wanderer whom I should see. Oh, Savior, if thou wilt be my guide, though dark and rugged the way, my voice shall echo the message sweet. I'll say what you want me to say. I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord, over mountain or plain or sea. Thy 
sincere, I'll be what you want me to be. I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord, over mountain or plain or sea. I'll say what you want me to say, dear Lord, I'll be what you want me to be. I'll be what you want me This wonderful music has been provided by Clayton and Sky Pixton. To check out more, go to ClaytonPixton.com. That's C-L-A-Y-T-O-N, Pixton, P-I-X-T-O-N.com, or SkyPixton.com, S-K-Y-E-P-I-X-T-O-N.com, or check us out on the MormonMatters.org website to get the links. Thanks again.